0: Last year, the church I grew up in hosted a lecture evening on explaining Islam, and the vicar uh, that was there invited one of his Christian colleagues to come and speak, who happens to work for the Archbishop of Canterbury as an advisor on the Islamic uh, religion. At the question time, I naturally, as a theologian, couldn't help myself but ask a question. What's the point, I asked, to live a life below Exonerated or punished according to one's deeds, while the Muslim understanding of the Creator stays up above. There's no relationship, there's no direct interaction, no purpose for the existence of either one of each other. What is the point? Yahweh is generous, a God of relationship. One of Jesus' titles even is Emmanuel, God with us. As a loving parent he provides for us and he takes care of us walking with his creation in the cool of the garden but as with any healthy relationship there needs to be trust hosea is a vivid depiction of how god feels when we as his bride wearing his cloak and lavished with his gifts breaks his trust and prostitute ourselves to idols In our recent Friday Communion series on the book of 1 John, this point was really emphasized a lot about God's justified jealousy and John's call to us to avoid all idols. The things that rip us from our relationship with God and take the trust away from being given to him and him alone. Midway through the story of Exodus, Yahweh disproves each of the gods of Egypt, the idols that they have put their trust in, ruining systematically what each one represents, food, water, health, light, even life. After freeing Moses' people and after the meanderings in the desert, Yahweh provides his people one of the key things that he has promised right back at the beginning in Genesis 15 with Abraham, land. We saw this again in Ezra recently as God works through Ezra's faithfulness and inspires him to return to their land, protecting his people along the way so that they can rebuild a temple and some defenses. A land signifies a key investment into God's people. So here in Luke 12, our passage began with a squabble over possession of land, which for the Jews had both religious as well as economic reasons for them to want to cling to their inheritance, a vital symbol of God's provision. But they, or at least one party involved in the dispute, make the mistake of thinking that Jesus will act as judge for this small matter of their personal, worldly inheritance. Jesus is indeed a judge, but in matters far more important than disputed wills. Jesus wasn't coming to tighten up Israel's land defenses. He was longing to shower grace and new life on people of every place and race. Jesus draws his listeners back to Yahweh's ancient desire to bless all nations through his chosen people. To his chosen people, he has given gifts and resources to serve a purpose. And words later in this chapter would not have gone misunderstood. The difference between nations of the world and those who call God Father. Like my question at this lecture on Islam last year, if the gods you worship are distant and removed or without a personhood of their own, then of course you will be worried. The kingdom of God is about God's sovereignty, sweeping the world with love and power so that human beings, each made in Yahweh's image and each one dearly loved, may relax into the knowledge that Yahweh is in control. I've been reading a book recently called The Contemplative Minister by Reverend Ian Coley, who is the Bishop of Salisbury, who says this, The truth is, is that we don't really learn to trust until we learn that we are not in control. Sooner or later, we have to place ourselves utterly and unconditionally in God's hands. If we do this day by day in our daily praying, letting go in love and letting God be God, this will profoundly change us over time and transform us into those for whom Christ truly is Lord. And this is hard, no question about it. But it is in the opposite direction to this that the rich fool in our story has chosen to go. Justin Welby, in his fantastic Lent book, Dethroning Mammon, rightly states, wealth buys visible privacy, large rooms, high walls, and big gardens. It buys leisure, opportunities to spend time as one chooses, and other people to do the chores. It buys company, friends, opportunity, and education. But it does not buy God. I was recently struck by the sermons given here on the parable of the talents, or bags of money. And one of the clear points from this parable was that the money entrusted to each of the three servants was not their money. It belonged to the master We cannot buy God besides the fact that it is his resource anyway. So, what are we using his resources for? What matters is that the kingdom of God is bringing the values and priorities of God himself to bear on the traits of greed and anxiety that this world has become festered with. We do this by sharing our inheritance. The possessions of this life need to be weighed against the possessions of eternity. And later on in this chapter, it talks about storing up treasure in heaven. And this doesn't mean treasure that we will only possess after death. As Tom Wright, previous bishop of Durham, puts it, heaven is God's sphere of created reality, which, as the Lord's Prayer suggests, will one day colonize earth, our sphere. It's like stocking up good stuff in the fridge, because one day when the father decides, the party will begin, and the goodies will be brought out into the sunshine. The rich man in the story is sensible enough, looking many years ahead and providing for them as Joseph did with the Egyptians. But the rich man has not taken into account the life of the world to come, where his plentiful earthly possessions will no longer be of any matter or use to him. Food and clothes are a necessary part of this world and Luke reassures us in chapter 12, verse 30, that your father knows that you need them. But the rich man has not been rich towards God. That key characteristic concern of the disciples of Jesus, those who have God as their father. The Bible clearly does not disapprove of money, quite the reverse. From God's blessing on Abraham's wealth through to the generosity of the early apostles, we can see clearly a scripturally positive view of money. As well again notes, we have a tendency to think about money as people in the prohibition era thought about alcohol. Although there is nothing specifically in the Bible that justifies its banning. We feel that its effects are so bad that there must be something inherently wrong with it. It should probably be outlawed altogether, or if we can't do that, we should at very least strongly discourage its use, lest we become this evil force's next victim. While this conviction applied to money may very well be the product of good intentions, it is nonetheless a very dangerous one. Tom Wright, while noting, that many of Jesus' listeners only had enough to live on and were often waiting on the disaster that would devastate a family of missing one paycheck. Not all Christians in the first few centuries were second-class citizens, and many owned their own homes. But many of those people shared great examples of how to use their resources for the kingdom. During my internship year here, I have been able to live in Chiswick thanks to the generosity of the Dennis family. John and Angela have very kindly taken me under their roof, filled their fridge, which is quite a tall order, shared their beautiful garden where I sat writing this sermon, listening to the birds singing and the sound of wind in the trees. Here is a family who are contributing positively to the people and society around them in Jesus' name offering generous and helpful actions on behalf of the wider community. Jesus is dividing between those who are taken up with the needs of immediate future and the things of this life. And those who see the ultimate future is far more important and chiefly concerned with being rich to God. I want to finish with the Ignatian thought by which we should be judging every single investment of resource that we have. My one desire and choice must be whatever leads to God's life being deepened in me. Just say that again. My one desire and choice must be whatever leads to God's life being deepened in me. Do you trust God with everything you have, you own, and you hold on to? How does your present life relate to God's future? And encourage others to make that future their own, here and now. God bless His word to us today. Amen.